0: This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Noah Charney, author of These Trees Tell a Story, The Art of Reading Landscapes. Noah Charney is Assistant Professor of Conservation Biology at the University of Maine, and co-author of the award-winning book, Tracks and Sign of Insects and Other Invertebrates, A Guide to North American Species. Today, we're here to talk about NOAA's most recent publication, These Trees Tell a Story. Structured as a series of interactive field walks through 10 New England ecosystems, this book challenges readers to see the world through the eyes of a trained naturalist, I'm so excited to be here with you today, Noah, and talk further about your book. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So the book starts in your friend's backyard. Uh, Caleb and Maya, your friends, wish to cut down their backyard trees to plant edible crops, including an orchard. In this first chapter, you also discuss your own effort to rewild your backyard in an atypical fashion to the neatly mowed grass yard that is so characteristic of the American dream. Can you talk more about why you begin the book in the backyard?
1: Well, I mean, that's where most people experience nature is in in their yard at their home, and that's where you have the most control over uh, over nature and over managing the world. If you you know if you have a yard of your own, or whether you live in an apartment and there's a there's a park nearby you or something, that's that's where you're going to first experience nature. So I think that makes sense to start there and start to learn about uh, your footprint on the world and, and uh, all the things right around where you are.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about the letter that you ended up writing to Caleb and Maya at the end of the first chapter?
1: Yeah, it was, it was a letter I wrote. Um, uh, I didn't actually send it to them, but it was sort of an idea of, of the nature of of what it means to manage your own little world around your house. And, and it's about slowing down, to take the time to realize how important it is everything you do and how much it affects everything in the future and how much your yard is sort of something that has come to be over millennia through all sorts of different forces and seeing your yard as a point in, in time where, um, you get to sort of control the flow of the future and really honoring that and honoring all the things that have come to be in your yard and and uh, really sort of taking that moment to give appreciation for everything that's there. And, and uh, then once you really get to know your yard and get to know why it is the way it is and what are the forces that have come to create the mud and the trees, um, then, only after you understand it, then sort of taking that next step to kind of figure out what you want to do with it and and where it's going to end up hundreds of years from now.
0: I think the the beginning is is really a compelling invitation to first start in the backyard and then move outward from there. And you write about growing up in um, a Tennessee forest in transition Mm -hmm. and your discussion of, of forests and savannas in transition was really fascinating because it explored the question if trees are actually working together or if they're in competition with each other. And I'm wondering how your own fascination um, with trees, the natural world and reading landscapes developed.
1: Yeah. And that's interesting. There was actually a good third of the book that was about this that got cut out (laughs) in the editing process. That was sort of maybe it was a little too much to fit in, but yeah, it is... um, it, is, uh, it was an important part of my development, right, was having this forest behind my house there and, um, and, and yeah, just wandering out into the woods and getting lost on the hill there and um, just poking around with the bugs and the little creek down at the bottom where I'd sit and watch the frogs and salamanders and just having that experience and having people who were mentors of mine that would take me out in the woods and just just from a very early age teach me about plants and things. And that was sort of where I found my, myself. Um, And, and yeah, it was interesting. Certainly like when I looked at that forest as a kid, these giant trees and and they were really big in Tennessee. Right. Um, And, uh, and there were parts of that forest that were old growth, but the parts right in my yard, when I look back at it as an adult now, I realize that those were trees that were early successional trees that were that had been a farm before that. And that was the first generation of trees growing up as I was growing up, as, as you mentioned, and uh, that there was another generation of trees coming in u- underneath it and that the forest of the future is going to look real different. And I didn't understand any of that as a kid. Um,
0: yeah. And, and can you talk more about, um, there are really great, uh, you know, drawings in the book and a lot, and some of the drawings are related to, Explaining what it what it means for a forest to be in transition, um, can you can you talk a more about the ways in which you you're, you wrote the book and how you constructed the book? I think in the in the middle of the book you have this really great line where you write Neat, neatness kills creativity, and I'm wondering yeah. if you can shed light on the process of the book, including a lot of the the really great photographs and drawings that supplement discussions like trees in transition.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you picked up on that line. That line came in and out of the book a couple of times, um, but um, and and I'll say too that you know it's on the surface there's a it's you know it's about natural history and ecology, but I'm always trying to work at multiple levels, and so I'm sort of there's metaphors and other things going on that I hope people take away from this. Um, but yeah, so. The book, you know, it, it came out of a course I used to teach um, where we would go to a different site each week and and there would be a mystery and the students would solve the mystery. And so I at the, I had this idea if I wanted to turn that into a book so I could reach more people. And uh, I got a fellowship to, to work on the book for a year at Harvard Forest. And uh, so I basically spent that year revisiting these sites and and photographing these sites. And I came to find that the best way to tell the story of the sites and the best way to sort of engage readers was actually to tell the story of my visiting those sites. So I came to just sort of see my mission in that year of writing the book as trying to photograph everything at the real sites. I didn't want any photographs when, when they were supposed to be at sites coming from somewhere else. So I wanted all the species to actually be there. And, and the journey of actually trying to take those photographs became the sort of narrative of a lot of the text there. So that became the story of me getting out there, trying to get those pictures. And, and uh, yeah. And I mean, the drawings, there's a few drawings, as you mentioned, that, that, uh, you know, the photographs tell the pieces of the story that you can see um, e- easily uh, through taking pictures of the sites. And then the drawings illustrate more of the conceptual ecology and in some Parts of it too, the drawings are just like the map at the beginning, and the little pieces in the chapters that are the sort of index from that map uh, and I wanted the drawings to feel hand drawn, so I wanted them to connect with me uh, to the the author and the reader connecting through through that
0: you you know you end each of the 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 chapters with guided questions that are based off of the mystery that the chapter starts with and your children are really an important part of this book as you tell the journey of going back to many sites you know you're revisiting many sites you're you're going to new sites and I'm wondering how um, sense of childlike curiosity plays out in the book um, how how does that how would you want readers to interpret that and interpret that for reading their own landscapes where where they stand
1: that's a really interesting point there and I Maybe I was thinking of that, but maybe not. But um, the book really is, like you said, it's it's meant to be an invitation for just curiosity. It's really a, um, it's not so much about going deep into like studying exactly how to identify every tree, every species. It's more about like being curious and just the concept of like looking and and what are the sorts of questions we can ask? It's an introduction to kind of slowing down and, and taking a look at the whole view of the world. Um, So you're right. It is this childlike curiosity. In some ways I feel a little like uh, it's kind of a naive book because it's a very much at the beginning of like, like it's not real deep into like high trained PhD ecology. It's more like right at the beginning. Like what are, what are we asking? What are all the big picture questions? So in some ways it's, it's childlike, which is uh, maybe a good thing here because as you mentioned, my kids play an important role in, well, in my life and in the book, and they're always there as I was like doing the research. So they just entered into the story. Um, and, you know, for me, it's part of the, we talked about like me seeing my childhood and growing up in these trees, with these trees that were growing up too, And then there's always these questions about the meaning of life. And like, what are we doing here? And seeing nature as transitioning, and seeing ourselves as transitioning. And so as the forest in front of us, is changing from one thing to the other. Uh, um, my dad, to me, to my kids, like there's this transition that you see throughout the book of our lives moving on. And uh, I wanted all those pieces to kind of feel a little connected. And as we're wrestling with the bigger questions about nature and the meaning of life and all these things, uh, I, I kind of wanted to tie those things together. Um, so, you know, that and, you know, part of part of the kids being in the book is just there's an element of of um, well, a tradition of ecologists and PhD men being like these people that don't raise kids <laughs> and like writing about uh, um, something that is like yeah, it's not family oriented in a way. And I'm you know I'm a primary caretaker and and I know so many moms that have struggled to do their PhD and raise kids at the same time and I was kinda in that same boat and I wanted to be I wanted that to all come into the story and like and and it just it's felt so important to me to like to include the struggles of being a full time parent and trying to make a living in the world, especially in academia. So mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Yeah, I think that's um really fascinating and also comes out in your Narratives and stories of of your friends who are raising their kids and in doing work that that you're yeah. talking about and you're learning from each other. And so I'm I'm wondering in in the ways that we can build our relationships to the environment, um, our understanding of our place within those environments. There are a couple of. Um, names that i'm I'm interested in exploring with you um or i guess categories of naming so i think throughout the book you you mention you know western categories of of naming plants but you also touch on indigenous names of plants and indigenous stories and topography including a lot of Haudenosaunee narratives and names and i think you know i'm really curious as as a conservation biologist these these names both of these naming systems and the many more that exist seem to be um, bringing us into relationship with the environment but can you talk more about how you know Western categories of naming can be helpful but also obscure these these different ways of being in relationship with the environment and, and how did you think about that in in your book
1: yeah and I, I guess this isn't my area of expertise really like um, but I i certainly reflected on it and i certainly you know there's stories of the the beaver that's this mountain that (laughs) where we live that is a i don't know if that enters into the story or not that i wrote about but it's you know there are all these legends of the of the landscape that come from the people that have lived here for thousands of years that um give the places meaning and that i i find powerful and And as I'm going into nature myself and I see places, I and my friends end up naming places and naming preachers that aren't necessarily like the sort of black and white Western naming tradition, but are more about our relationships and about the things we've done there and the things that are meaningful to us. And and I I just am more attracted to the sorts of names where there's a deep relationship to place. Um, I think I I was intending to honor the people who have seen uh, these aspects of nature from different perspectives for for a long time um so yeah I, I think it was important for me to want to include the different ways of of naming and seeing and relating to places and species um and i did my best to honor the different traditions that i could come up with um and uh that's uh yeah that's the sort of where i where i'd leave it i guess
0: mm-hmm. especially in your your conversation of pine needle tea there was a really great I think um consideration of Haudenosaunee narratives and also in 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 seeing the the past history of sediments of of clay and whatnot that there might be oral traditions that have passed down um throughout generations that might speak to what you know a great lake might have looked like if you want to speak more about that
1: (laughs) yeah I mean that that to me is one of the most sort of fascinating things I mean the there is a A local legend that there was this great lake and there's this whole story like i mentioned about this beaver and this dam and then the dam broke and the lake left and all this stuff and and then you know for a long time scientists had been saying well there weren't native people here at the time that there was in fact a glacial lake they found the evidence the geologic evidence that there was a glacial lake here but but people weren't here then um, and so there's no way they could have known about this, but these stories were very specific <laughs> and like really clear and then uh, later on there was more work I think more recently that's shown that in fact people may have been arriving right about the time the lake was uh, was it uh, was sort of uh, went away um so it seems actually pretty likely that there were people here and that that would have been yeah like ten thousand years ago and that's an oral tradition that has been through what, 500 generations or more of like telling the story of this lake that hasn't been there in 10,000 years. And it's just incredible to me that that can persist and be so specific and be so clear. And and, uh, and it's really, it's, it's again, one of these useful stories too, because it talks about where the soils are good and that's the lake bottom sediments, um, which are great. That's where my garden is happy. <laughs> and uh, and if you get above that lake level, suddenly it's just glacial till and it's acidic soils and it's not really the places you want to be planting your crops. So, um, yeah, so there's a, there's a long legend about that. I don't know if, if I should retell that now, but, you know, with different players and the, the cornfields and the evil spirits that, that I find fascinating. Um, mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah, and I think, you know, on, on the theme of both parenthood and kinship, I'm wondering if we can turn to a moment that you talk about your students encountering examples of rocks in, in their environment. And at a certain point, you, you write, the students then came to discover the same rock types later in the field, like finally meeting the parents of an old friend. And I thought that was a really great line. And I'm wondering how how you hope that educators will make use of your prompts at the end of these chapters and the book as a whole.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it the book is an invitation to use it as a teaching tool and to teach in this method, which is experiential, it's project based, and it gets students out there exploring uh exploring the world exploring nature and and asking questions and and i should say that you know it's based on a teaching model that i didn't develop it was, i borrowed it from the university of vermont their field naturals program and they helped me develop this model and i think they in turn sort of developed these ideas from tom Sikama at yale and other folks and so you know it's a it's a tradition that that's been passed around um the you know the rocks in particular i the first day of class i spread out all the rocks from the valley on the on the table there and i didn't give them names or anything i just let the students sort through them and try to like they sort of put them into groups of megamorphic and igneous without having really a lot of like a background in geology and just kind of like we talked about them we looked at all the rocks and and it's just this process of becoming familiar and holding but without necessarily naming like like we talked about you know we don't need the scientific names we just need some relationship to these rocks we need to see them and feel feel them and and we didn't name them at the end of that day and then as you said over the course of the semester we'd be out in the field and each one of those rocks would pop up at different field sites and they would see them and they would then be like oh wait (laughs) we saw we saw your family member on the table the first day (laughs) of class oh this was this one and then we start to like you know get deeper and and again this whole thing to me is about building relationships and and finding the meaning in that. So yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really beautiful way of of learning the experiential learning model that you've talked that you talked about that has been built up at many different universities and that you I think really capture in this book for readers. And I'm wondering if we can talk more about the animals that utilize different rock faces And you move through the book. There are 10 chapters of the book and you move through the book on different topics, such as land, water, change, elevation, and aliens. And I really appreciated your discussion of the ways in which animals have unique ways of marking their territory and also using that as, as a pedagogical tool to see, you know, when, when the students would notice if there's pee on a certain tree or a scratch here. And, um, so I would love for you to talk about that, but, I, but I'm also interested going back to rocks and animals in the way that you approach salamanders and your interest in salamanders. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about the ways in which salamanders and other animals appear in the book and how they, they kind of map out in our network of, of reading the, the landscape.
1: Yeah. I mean, salamanders, I, I, I like them. They're cute. And they happen to be sort of my study system in, in ecology and academia where I've done a lot of work. And so they pop up over and over again, in part because I, I know them well. um, And, and because it's a system that I know I can relate different ecological theory and conservation theory to them directly in anybody's study system, they could see the same sorts of things. But for me, it's like, my go-to, well, here's the concept. Oh, I can I can explain that in terms of salamanders. <laughs> so they pop up uh, over and over again, and and you know salamanders are um, they're of conservation concern in a lot of different places. They're really sensitive, and so they're they're an easy one to kind of like think about how our actions are going to affect the natural world. And they're also the base sort of vertebrate food trophic level in in forests in the Northeast. So they're important. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's sort of why they pop up, I suppose.
0: And you also um, mentioned their their locations, like why is something in a certain place in the environment is can also be very telling. And and I think I think you were talking about how many uh, because of the forest fires, a lot of salamanders hid under certain rocks, and and therefore we can tell patterns of the environment based off of where certain um populations are
1: right so that was the cheap mountain salamander in west virginia um that that particular species uh was throughout these forests they were sort of these spruce uh, spruce fir forests i haven't been to actually but they were like these montane um forests that had cheap mountain salamanders throughout and then there were these giant forest fires 100 or couple hundred years ago and burned down all the leaf litter like the for burned for months and months And basically, the only place the salamanders survived, because they all got burnt up, the only place they survived were where there were big rocks that they could hide under that didn't burn under them, like these giant boulders. And so now today, it's the salamanders, the cheap mountain salamanders only live sort of near these big rocks. Um, But yeah, I think more broadly to your your earlier question about P and location and animals and, and thinking about context, you know, one of the big sort of messages I try to get across in the book is just thinking about spatial context and thinking about like looking at the environment around you. And I tell this story about someone who uh, m- misidentified a scat for a raccoon scat. One of my friends, we were out there in the woods and he, he thought it was a raccoon scat and he was at this trail intersection and I couldn't see it. He was way up ahead, but I knew it wasn't a raccoon scat because that's just not the kind of place they would mark territory. It was at, it was a territorial marking because it was at a trail intersection on the edge of the woods. So it, it was almost certainly a coyote marking territory, and I don't need to look at the scat to know that, right? Uh, I know based on its location. So there's so much of where animals mark, where they put their pee, where they put their scat, that is based on the location and the context and the environment around them and learning to step back and see not what is the thing I'm looking at, but what is the place around? What is the context? What is what is nearby? And so, you know, coyotes at a trail intersection, uh, Bears will mark at a, a big tree at the, at the sort of peninsula on a wetland and a similar kind of place where otters will mark where there's a, a good sort of sort of area that comes into a, like a, again, a sort of peninsula or area where they can get out of water. Um, bobcats will mark on sort of prominent, either like under a pine tree or a prominent or a, a little stump or rock that's sort of standing up on their travel corridor. Um Fishers will mark on this little tiny uh, stumps that are maybe a foot tall or less than that, but are like pointy at the top and they get like to rub their bellies on. And so, you know, every different animal has a sort of cue in on what they're looking at and what is the context in which they're looking at to mark, you know, like a deer will do an antler rub in a, on a little hemlock that's sort of prominent in its location to sort of mark its territory. So, yeah, so choosing the locations, understanding, you know, what's around that's just for the marking piece of things. But um, yeah, it's an important part of, of the whole thing.
0: The, the question of, you know, why is this here is such a great springboard to answering so many of the mysteries that you present in the book. And also, you know, an interesting way to situate ourselves in the environment. A lot of these markers we might not be able to smell, but we can see them and we can perceive them. And so, trying to figure out how to navigate safely and also respectfully in the environment is really important. I, I would think for for both ecologists, for <laughs> hikers, and, and whatnot, that seems to be an, an important tool to have.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I and for management too. You know, there might be a forest or a flower or, or something that's like really sacred and important. Um, <clears throat> But if you put it in a place that is not in the right context, it's just it's out of place and it either will die or it'll bring in sort of a different whole uh, ecosystem functioning. Um, And what is next to a place is often as important, if not more important than what is there. So what species you're going to have in your yard depends on how connected they are to the forest nearby or the river or what's what's uh, what's around you Um, and same thing you know if you're building a road or you're doing any sort of management which I've worked in you know different areas of my life in conservation contexts and and you know there's so much focus on like we're going to put in a house on this parcel or we're going to put a park on this parcel we're going to like look at the road here between these lines and our policies our way of thinking doesn't tend to like Cross outside of those lines, like doesn't look at like what's in the neighboring yard, what's what's the neighboring road, where's the stream nearby, what is what's the ecological flow around this parcel, which is so important if we're going to have effective conservation. We can't just go parcel by parcel or property by property, looking down at the ground at our feet. We need to look at what's fully around us. That's what the animals are doing. That's what the plants are doing. That's sort of what the water is doing, right? And so we we can't make decisions on a place by place basis. It, it, It has to be. We can't make decisions on a place-by-place basis. It has to be looking at the whole landscape. And, and I think that's so important. Um,
0: yeah, I'm wondering if we can talk more about that um, larger systems level approach to, uh, to to ecological management. And when you write about your um, experience at the Harvard Forest, you, you write about the really interesting experiments that they they have there Um to predict the impact of of global warming on soil so you mentioned that there are soil warming experiments to simulate the effect of global warming on those microbiomes but also there are other stimulations such as weather to to predict what the effect on trees such as hurricanes or tornadoes and i'm really interested you know in these stimulations and hearing more about the ways in which climate change will affect how we can read our environment and and how we can do so in the future.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, and, you know, Harvard Forest is a long-term ecological research station as part of a network of LTERs that are invested in these sorts of well, long-term ecological research, which often involves big manipulations that you can't just do like in a little place that you're not going to be invested in for the long term. So these sites have the capacity to, do things like simulate a whole hurricane or simulate a giant ice storm or do these big or, or warm the soil and then wait 30 years and, and see what happens. Um, and so that's sort of the, the mission of these places. So it's an important resource and it's, you know, it's, it's really important for ecology, which plays out over long time timeframes. Whereas, you know, PhDs play all over three or four years and like, which is the sort of the wrong scale for doing so much, um, but it's sort of how our, our academia is set up but yeah so um you know it's interesting that soil warming experiment which i i'm not really involved in i you know there's great researchers that have been doing that for a long time and i i believe what they found is you know turnover in the microbiome in the community that's of, of fungi and bacteria and all the things that live in the soil and that turnover just keeps turning over as they warm the soils and it's not like it's reached some stable equilibrium yet it's been like decades and it's still like dynamic um and so what's exactly going to happen and how things will settle out with climate change i think you know it's really difficult to say in a lot of ways there's you know we know that the climate is warming that part isn't sort of so hard to say but how exactly species will respond in 100 years from now that's pretty hard in part because we're entering a regime where we don't have a, like a past analog to look at we, we're entering climate um combinations of weather of, of temperature and precipitation that are unlike things we've seen in the past for any particular location um and so we can look at some of the underlying mechanisms and we can think sort of a near-term forecast what's going to happen in the next few years um But increasingly, it becomes hard to sort of say exactly what everything will look like in the future. And I'll say in this book, you know, I don't spend a lot of time talking about climate change and trying to, I feel like many other people have done great work with that. And I I do that in my research to some extent. But the one thing that I think comes up a lot in the book is is looking to the past and giving us that reference for how much things have changed already over the last hundreds and thousands of years. And that gives us that reference point. And, and help. I mean, I think it probably gives me some humility and and sort of stepping back. And as much as I want to hold on to the forest and everything as it is now, because it's like mine, it's the relationship I have with. I, I don't want it to go away. I don't want myself to die. I don't want anything to change. You know, um, The reality is things have always changed in, in the natural world. And there's some amount of letting go that has to happen. Um, and that doesn't mean we should just like burn all the oil and, and let everything burn to the ground because we have certain values we associate with species and salamanders and, and all sorts of other things and we make our choices based on the things we value um but it you know it's there's a truth that there's constant change in nature and it becomes difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen as things get more dynamic and as we get away from the baseline that we've seen over the last hundred years or so of like careful ecological studies um but you know in general we can say that with warming especially in in, well in the u.s there's going to be more evapotranspiration which means the trees are going to probably for the most part have less water and they're going to probably slow down in their growth there was a study i did with some colleagues on that and we can make specific predictions like that where it's like you can in general there will be more droughts and and more uh, sort of death of trees and and uh, more uh, you know in, in specific locations like that but um but then how that plays out throughout w- which species will end up thriving and what the forest exactly is gonna look like. I think there's a lot of unknowns that that we'll just have to kind of see, so.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I was um, really interested in your use of different geological surveys to map out where you would travel in the forest. And just thinking about um, not only the natural rhythms of change in different forests, um, but how much uncertainty is in this process, but how, you know, standing and, and perceiving and, and, and being able to walk in any direction is, is really an important part of of the book. And I'm wondering if we can talk about some of the social aspects that you touched on really briefly in the, in the introduction, but I think are really interesting and, and will be engaging for our listeners, especially the social aspects and challenges of your research, how policing and border politics affect the way that we're able to interact with our environment. And I'm wondering if you can speak more about that, how the you know our social apparatuses might, might play out how we use this book, but also how um, important it is to, to perceive our environment or in order to know ourselves and the landscape better.
1: Yeah. I mean, you touched on, these. You know, I have a series of stories I have about times where I had run-ins with the law doing things that look different than normal. And, uh, and, uh, so police and the border patrol or other folks come up to us and, and try to arrest us for being sketchy basically. Um, and, you know, I, I think people get nervous when, when you start looking at things in a different way and like people aren't used to, Folks running, like sort of looking at the bugs on the walls and looking under the trees and looking in different ways, and and we're so used to sort of acting this particular type of way, walking straight down the trail and walking on the road that um, that when we start to look at things in a different way, people get uh, nervous and think we must be up to no good, and I think you know I, I would recognize that like I'm very privileged in my status and, 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 you know, as a white male, like being able to be out there and feel fairly comfortable in those situations. I think a lot of uh, people, people of color, people without the the sort of connections and networks and experiences may not come out of those situations as, as unscathed as I did. Um, And I think that's what prevents a lot of people from engaging with nature in the way that uh, I've been able to, um, both because of the realities of how how people are perceived in their behaviors. Um, like if I'm doing something sketchy, maybe it gets less, uh, I'm less likely to have the guns drawn on me, even though that happens, then, then maybe somebody else. Um, but also the fear of like, you know, the, the comfort with, you know, I had this privileged capacity to wander in the woods as a child. And a lot of folks grew up with the woods, the forest is culturally somewhere where lynchings happen that's there somewhere where you don't go right and so somewhere where we're just sort of are walled off from uh culturally uh from from segments of society and so i think you know there's this part of access to nature and capacity to inquire in these particular types of ways that isn't spread evenly across us Um, and so yeah and, and so i think that you know, that's part of what sort of limits uh, equal access to nature and equal engagement with nature. I think we also like I mean, I, you know, throughout the writing of the book and throughout thinking about nature, I mean, I, I sort of reflect as I see all of nature as kind of a part of myself. I see my own stories in the trees and the species and the plants. And like I, I really like that is as much a part of me as my fingers sometimes you know like it's sort of like i i i feel really connected to it and and i see it in a particular I, I suppose i see particular types of forests particular types of systems as the systems that i identify with and that i think you know in my mind are like the good right like old growth forests and and things that are untouched by humans whereas in reality i mean nothing is really untouched by humans and and who's to say that an old growth forest is better than some uh, early successional thing full of exotic species. And we all bring our own values to the table in terms of what what makes us happy or feels like a part of us. And and um, so I, there's always these values that we bring to nature and that, that reflect back on us. So
0: yeah, I, th- I think that that was a great um, response because in some ways, you know, they're the, the questions that you have at the end of each chapter when asked in community can be, I think, move uh, more complicated perceptions of nature towards healing um, and community, you know, community work and, and, and engagement together. It, it was really, I think, fascinating mention in the introduction, you know, of you of you being um, stopped for, for having curiosity. Um, and I think that the book can really help us do that in both individual and collective ways. And, you know, it, in, in the conclusion of the book, you write, this is a quote, whether we choose to save the cat, the whale, the salamander, or the mouse depends on which creatures we've formed a relationship with, um, which is such a great, I think, pitch for the book, how we value nature depends on on how we perceive nature. And, you know, we've covered a lot of a lot of ground in the conversation from, you know, your your own interest in the in the Tennessee forest to the ways that your students engaged in in the environment, the way that climate can impact the environment. But there's still so much that is is in the book. And I'm wondering, you know, as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners about the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, my hope is that, you know, in reading the book and engaging in nature this way, that they that folks feel just more connected to nature, that they also have a broader perspective of nature and of the world. And, and, you know, it depends on where you're coming from. If you're an ecologist that's ordinarily focused on one taxa, hopefully this book helps you think about all the other layers of connection and, and uh, processes that may be affecting the systems that you generally think about. Um, if you're sort of a naturalist that's like really into tracking and identifying plants and animals and everything, hopefully this gives you the capacity to sort of ask questions a little more deeply and think about how all the layers connect and, and go out and, and understand your backyard more deeply and all the places you visit. And, and if you sort of never set foot in nature (laughs) like hopefully there are stories in here that are still engaging and maybe all of these species are unfamiliar but there's still enough sort of uh about the process of questioning and the way to look at the world and just amusing stories that can keep you engaged and, and help you walk out into the world and see like how much diversity and how much is going on beneath our noses all the interactions and all the different forces at play the hundreds of thousands of insects and species that live around this continent and, and uh, just be in awe of all the things that have come together to form us and our world and uh, the places where we are and, and all the things that every time we set foot on a patch of grass, like all the things we're affecting and and how that's going to ripple out down into the future. Um, So, you know, seeing that bigger picture, being in awe and, and feeling connected and, trying to find some sense of meaning and order in the world and, and uh, hopefully just enjoying the pictures and, <laughs> and uh, wanting to go out and, and try this in your backyard and try this in your home woods and, and see what you can discover about nature around you are sort of some of the things that I hope hope people walk away with from this book.
0: Well, uh, you know, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast and, and taking time out of your day to talk to us about your book and i think it's you know it's a really great field guide to the ways to, to learning about how to read our environment but also how to learn more about ourselves in the process
1: great well thanks so much for having me it's been a lot of fun
0: so these trees tell a story the art of reading landscapes by noah charney is now available wherever books are sold thank you so much for listening Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.